Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. For those of us fortunate enough to have grown old, we've gained the perspective necessary to look back at our lives and see the set of experiences that have become the key steps in our lives. Although we're on different paths, when comparing our stories with those of others, more often than not, similar experiences have become the turning points we've taken along the way. Some examples could be our first broken heart, a first job, or even a high school graduation. Now, as significant as these moments may feel at the time, what makes them considered coming-of-age moments is that we get to look back at them and see how our lives have changed since. In the story you'll hear tonight, our subject is a 19-year-old who had just moved out of his family home and into his first apartment. However, after being on his own for just under three weeks, he simply vanished, leaving behind little more than a puzzling phone call. Although no one has been able to say for certain, it's reasonable to think something tragic happened while in the midst of one of life's most common coming-of-age experiences. In tonight's episode, our topic will be the 1998 disappearance of then-19-year-old Troy Cook. Our guest will be the last person to see Troy, his father, Tom Cook. Listeners of Nighttime who live in or near Nova Scotia have likely seen Troy's photo and have heard the basic details of this case. Fortunately for Troy, and unlike so many other missing Canadians, his case has received the benefits that come with becoming one of its province's most well-known missing persons cases. The attention Troy's disappearance has received is likely due to a variety of factors. When you learn about Troy, you will see he was just a regular guy, exactly like so many of you listening. But more than that, the reason Troy's case hasn't been, and never will be forgotten, is his father Tom Cook's campaign to share the story and ask for support and advocacy from anyone willing to help. If one does a simple online search about Troy Cook's disappearance, you'll find a variety of articles published over the last 20 years in which Troy's dad Tom recounts the few known facts in Troy's case. What many of those articles don't mention is that the genesis for the news report was a call or an email made to the station from Troy's dad, Tom, begging for the coverage. When I decided to cover Troy's story, I expected Tom would be willing to speak with me, but I never imagined he'd be as accommodating as he was. Almost as soon as I expressed my interest in learning more about Troy's disappearance, Tom asked how soon he could make the roughly one-hour drive to meet with me and tell me all about his son. In the end, Tom made the trip twice, once to talk over coffee and a second time to record the conversation in my home studio. In this episode, I'll use excerpts from my conversation with Tom to tell his family's heartbreaking story. So at this point, the introductions are just about out of the way. As you'll be spending a good amount of an hour with Troy's father, Tom, I'll first play a short clip of Tom introducing himself to you and sharing his motivation to tell you this story. Hi, my name is Tom Cook. 
Troy is my son who's been missing for almost 20 years from Toro. And sharing the story, I just hope somebody will hear it. And if they know anything, they would come forward so we can have closure on this. The Tom Cook you've just heard is a much different guy than the one I saw in the old news reports and articles I viewed when researching Troy's disappearance. And it wasn't simply the passage of time. When I sat down with Tom, the pain in his eyes and voice was palpable. It was obvious that the last 20 years had been unimaginably hard on him and his family. We addressed that before getting into Troy's story. I asked Tom to start by describing the general effects this tragedy has had on his family. Uh, the biggest thing with Troy being missing is, like, we were very close. We did so many things together, and uh, we used to motorbike a lot and swim and and just hang out, movies. And, and now that he's gone, like, my wife and I uh, divorced. That was hard. And it's hard on Mike because that was his older brother, which he should have around when he's growing up. It's just what I went from a married man with two kids and a wife and a home, and it's just like I'm starting all over again. I believe to understand Troy's disappearance and to reasonably consider the long-rumored theories that have become connected to it, we need to understand who Troy was at the time he was last seen. So with that goal in mind, Tom and I began our talk by discussing Troy's life prior to his disappearance. Tom started by describing Troy's childhood. At this point, in the early 80s, Tom and his then-wife Lorraine were living in a small community outside of Truro in Colchester County, Nova Scotia. Troy was their first child, followed a few years later by their second, Troy's younger brother Mike. Um, Troy was a happy little boy. He has always had a smile on his face. He was so sociable with uh, people, and uh, when his brother Michael was born, he was so happy. He... He had a little brother to look after and play with. And with Troy, he always wanted to try new things. Like, uh, I bought him his first motorbike when he was five, and he took to it like he knew how to drive it years before that. He loved to swim. He loved camping. Just everything with the family. Troy's upbringing was largely uneventful. No matter which way you look at it, he was absolutely a regular guy. As Troy hit his teenage years, looking towards young adulthood, his budding social life began capturing the majority of his attention. Not surprising for a good-looking, well-liked guy in a small town in Canada. Troy wasn't an excellent student, but he he loved the social life, meeting uh, girls and friends, and uh, he loved to drive. He got his license when he was 16, and... uh, like a regular guy. Regular guy, yes. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. As I said in the prior piece, at this point in Troy's life, he'd been living with his mom, dad, and younger brother Mike in a small community in Colchester County, Nova Scotia. 
As anyone listening who grew up in a small town can relate to, Troy found himself slowly drawn towards his area's largest urban center, which in Troy's case was the town of Truro, Nova Scotia. It started with his first real job. Yes, Troy worked at the Atlantic Superstore in Truro. He was there when he was in school, and then after he got out of school, they hired him full-time. He, he loved the job, he loved the people, and uh, I don't think it was going to be his career later on in life, but it was a start. When Troy began earning a steady income, he made another decision I'm sure many of you can relate to. In his case, it's hard not to see this decision as a turning point in Troy's story. The now 19-year-old Troy was ready to leave the nest. We were doing dishes one night. I always washed. He was drying, and he said, Dad, he said, I've been thinking about getting an apartment. What do you think? And I said, well, I said, Troy, I was your age when I got my first one, and I said, if you need any help, we'll, you know, we'll help you out. So we, within the next few weeks, we found an apartment. We moved him in, and he seemed very happy, and, and he uh, was only a few minutes from his work, so he didn't have to have his car in town. At this point in the story, we're at June of 1998, and only weeks prior to Troy's disappearance. Troy, at this point, is a small-town boy, living in a medium-sized town, and getting his first real sense of freedom. As you just heard Tom describe, Troy had just moved into his first apartment, a modest two-bedroom flat on Willow Street in the heart of Truro. His roommate was a friend he met through his work at the grocery store. Although this roommate was 10 years older than Troy, they must have gotten along well enough to decide to move in together. When Tom and I spoke, I asked what he knew about Troy's life during the short period of time he lived in the Willow Street department. As you'll hear, Troy's outgoing nature and access to the Truro nightclub Chevys would bring many new people into his life. Troy, I always knew all his friends because we always, he always had his friends out home and we had a pool table. But when he moved into his apartment... Uh, he got into the bar scene. He was 19 years old, and he started meeting, meeting new people who I didn't know. And where we're the hub of Nova Scotia, we got people from Moncton, Halifax. And if he is sitting at a table having a, a drink, um, and somebody said, well, let's go back to my place, Troy, Troy would have no hesitation. He just loved being social. <laughs> Although Troy was making the most of his freedom, he still kept in regular contact with his family. And of course, as is customary in a young person's first apartment, his folks dropped off care packages. Okay, uh, when Troy first moved in, uh, he didn't have a phone, so if he had to phone me, he'd either use a pay phone or, or I would drop in to see him every day at the store just to see if he needed anything. And if he did, I'd just leave him a care package on his door handle and... Uh, go from there but even though he lived in town he always came out home at least a couple times a week to you know do laundry and have a good supper and uh, see his mom and his brother Mike. Up to this point in Troy's story his life is completely typical. A regular kid becomes a regular 19 year old and like so many young adults he had a healthy interest in meeting potential love interests and experiencing the nightlife. But if there was something happening in Troy's life that would lead to his disappearance, it'd be happening now, as after only three weeks of living on his own, Troy would disappear. In the next segment of the episode, we'll hear about Troy's last known activities. 
The events directly leading up to Troy's disappearance would begin the night before he was last seen or heard from. It was a Wednesday evening in June of 1998. Instead of his new apartment, Troy would return to his family home and spend the night there with his parents. Tom explained what would have been an otherwise forgettable night. Well, I picked Troy up at his work. He, he came out for a, a barbecue, and uh, after that we watched a few mo- movies, and then he did a laundry, and uh, he never said he had anything planned for the next day, and we were supposed to meet Friday for supper with the family. As you just heard Tom mention, after spending the prior night at the family home, the next morning, Thursday, June 11th, just before 10 a.m., our guest Tom dropped Troy off outside the Willow Street apartment he had moved into just three weeks prior. As it will turn out, this will be the last confirmed sighting of Troy. Much like the prior night, the ride to the apartment was uneventful. Uh, in the car, a very it was just more or less chit-chat, small chit-chat, and... I always asked him, he, he was a smoker, I always asked him, did you have enough smokes for the day and did you get enough cash on you and stuff like that, but nothing serious and he had nothing planned with his friends or... So it was just any other Yeah, day. it was just any other day. As this drop-off eventually becomes the last confirmed sighting of Troy, it gained considerable importance in the discussion that surrounds this case. I asked Tom to provide a more detailed description of the actual drop-off. As you'll hear, Tom never actually saw Troy enter the apartment. That day I was in kind of a hurry. I dropped him off because I had to go put my car into the garage for a repair. And I dropped him off at the side of his house so I couldn't see his driveway where, where his door was. So he walked, he got out of the car and walked to the door and that's the last time I ever seen him. And I went to my uh, garage and they dropped me to my work and, and that was it. Did you actually see him enter the apartment? No, no, because it was out of my sight. Okay. Yeah. As Tom just mentioned, Troy was dropped off at the apartment, and Tom continued about his day, first to get his car serviced, and then off to work. Before dropping Troy off, they said their goodbyes and agreed to meet for supper at a local restaurant the following day. Although looking back from the present day, we know something unusual happened to Troy shortly after being dropped off, But to Tom, there was no reason to be concerned, at least until after Tom arrived at the restaurant as planned that Friday evening. When when we were to meet at uh, the restaurant, we arrived and uh, I I believe we went in and he wasn't there. We waited maybe 15 minutes and then I phoned his work. Then I phoned a few friends and they hadn't seen him. Then we started getting kind of worried, so that's when I went to uh, the RCMP. With Troy failing to arrive at the restaurant as planned that Friday night, and Tom's phone calls unable to locate him, Tom turns to law enforcement for help. During our talk, Tom described the process of filing a missing persons report in the initial lukewarm reaction he received. The reason I went to the RCMP was um, it was in our jurisdiction because we lived in Kemptown, but after I told them what had happened, they, they told me I'd have to go to Toro Police because... They, it wasn't in their jurisdiction. So so anyway, I after I packed up and I went to Toro Police and told them the story, and then, then it wasn't really taken too seriously because of his age. And we lost two to three days just waiting, waiting for him to show, yeah. We lost so much time. And then uh, 
like if anybody had came in and picked Troy up that day, you know, I said, was there ash, just Troy's butts in the ashtray or was there somebody else? All that was gone, you know, like I'm no police detective, but. After filing the missing persons report and waiting for a few days to pass before police really took this disappearance seriously, law enforcement would do the best they could to try and trace Troy's whereabouts from the point he was dropped off outside the apartment. As you'll hear shortly, there is really only one breadcrumb left behind, and that breadcrumb was dropped roughly a half hour after Troy stepped out of the car and said goodbye to his dad. You may recall from the prior clips, but Troy had been working at a grocery store. He was scheduled to work a shift the afternoon he was last seen. However, shortly after being dropped off, Troy, or someone pretending to be Troy, phoned his employer to let them know he wouldn't be in. Tom will discuss that phone call in the next clip. Unlike the other clips you've heard so far, this one was taken during my first meeting with Tom at a local coffee shop, so it'll sound a bit different for that reason. Troy didn't have a phone. The phone call was made in Bible Hill, which is a good 15-minute walk from there if yeah. you walked it, you know. And the woman who answered, she said, I thought it was Troy, but she said, I can't be 100% sure. Yeah. So. And how did you find out where he phoned from? Like, police traced it or something? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and the cameras weren't working at Tim Horton. Uh, thought, like they're just, just worst case. Oh, it, did he have any connection with Bible Hill? I'm sure he had probably friends. Well, there. I have uh, a sister who lives there and stuff. Yeah. But but he had to go through Bible Hill, get into Charles. So okay. So we came right by there. You know, like so we passed through. So I, if he had to make a phone call, he would have, you know, yeah. either done it for home or said, "Dad, I got to make a phone call." You know. Yeah. Is so. it, would it have been common for him to miss work? Like, no, no, because something. Odd was happening that yeah, day. Yeah, because you know he 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 lived from paycheck paycheck to same as everybody. And yeah, no, he wasn't one to miss work. Yeah. So. And then somebody said that like we had a, a club in Troy was called Chevy's, mm-hmm. and somebody said he sit they seen him there, but they couldn't remember if it was Wednesday night to Thursday night or Friday night. Yeah. So that led the police astray too. Yeah. And the cameras on them wasn't working either. So. So and it's just a. a Basically, once aside from that phone call, there's just no sign of them. No. And then the phone call has a question mark too, because it yes. could have been someone else. And I, I just don't know why someone would phone. Like, yeah. And just, and then when I dropped them off, I couldn't see if there was anybody parked in his driveway cause yeah. where I made the UE and stuff. So. And how? Because you dropped them off at what time, roughly? Uh, just close to ten, because my appointment was at ten for the yeah for the garage. Yeah. Yeah. And when did the phone call come to you? It was I just after that. Okay. Just after ten, yeah. Okay. So that's what I mean. He wouldn't have time to walk. Okay. So somebody, if he did go over that payphone news, he'd have to drive. Okay. The main thought is that someone must have picked him up, and he called. Yeah. I even drove it, and I said I couldn't even walk, and I'm a fast walker. Yeah. I couldn't walk that in 15 minutes. Sadly, aside from the phone call Troy may or may not have made to his employer from a payphone outside of a Tim Hortons coffee shop and the sighting at Chevy's nightclub, which almost certainly wasn't him, from our current position in time, 20 years after Tom dropped him off outside the apartment, nothing more is known about Troy's activities after he stepped out of his father's car and walked off out of sight. But that hasn't stopped people from talking. Much like any unsolved case which received a sizable amount of public attention, for better or worse, Troy's disappearance has been the source of nearly endless rumors and speculation. In the next segment of this episode, 
I'll include portions of my discussion with Tom in which he addresses some of the more often discussed theories and some things that, in hindsight, just haven't sat well with him. As we heard prior, just three weeks before Troy's disappearance, he experienced a significant life change. He moved out of his family home and into his first apartment, a modest flat in downtown Truro. Given the timing of his disappearance in relation to his move, it's reasonable to consider a connection between the two events. When I spoke with Tom, I asked him what he knew about Troy's roommate and what the roommate had to say about what may have happened to Troy. Now, I'm not sure if this matters at all, but the roommate is 10 years older than Troy. I only say that as I see it unusual for a 29-year-old to live with a 19-year-old. Here's what Tom had to say about the co-worker of Troy's that became his roommate. I didn't know this chap very well. I only met him a few times, and one, at one time I had taken him and Troy out for supper and uh, got to know him a little bit there. He seemed like a fairly decent guy. But Troy worked with him, and so he must have been okay for Troy to bring him into his life. And uh, I asked him about Troy if he knew if he had anything planned for that day, and he, he didn't think he did. He didn't say nothing to him or let on that he knew anything. So that kind of led to a dead end also. Like Tom just said, leading up to and during Troy's three weeks sharing the apartment with the co-worker from the superstore, the guy seemed all right. Although there was no reason to think he was involved in Troy's disappearance, something he would say to Tom in the weeks after Troy's disappearance would leave Troy's family very unsettled. In fact, to this day, 20 years later, Tom was visibly upset by this exchange. Yes, I met him in the superstore where he worked, and uh, I was telling him I was going to pick up Troy's stuff, and he said, and Troy had two guitars, and he said that... Uh, Troy would want him to have them. And I said, no. I said, I think Troy has come back home. So so that seemed really out of place to me. And how long was this after Troy's disappearance that he wanted to keep the guitars? Maybe a week, two weeks, if that. When considering factors that may have led to Troy's disappearance, many also look to his social life. You may recall Tom mentioning his son being actively interested in girls and his willingness to approach them without any hesitation. As Troy spent a considerable amount of time at Chevy's nightclub just prior to his disappearance, some question if he may have said or did something that gave someone motivation to do something terrible. I work with a chap. He moonlighted at Chevy's collecting their bottles and stuff in the evenings, and he told me that Troy was in there quite a bit, and if there was a nice-looking girl there, no matter who she was with, he'd go over and sit down and talk to her, and he said, you should watch him, Tom, because uh, I think he's going to get hurt if he doesn't smarten up. And uh, so he was, he was keeping an eye on Troy, too, so it was good. Although there's no evidence of Troy getting into any trouble at Chevy's, it comes up often, and in more ways than simply, did Troy approach the wrong girl? Another aspect of Chevy's that makes people wonder is its exposure to the drug trade. You may have heard Tom refer to Truro as a hub city. 
What he means is that Truro is a place that many pass through while traveling between Atlantic Canada's many larger cities. And as such, the illegal drug trade has a lot to gain by establishing a presence in Truro. During our noisier talk at Tim Horton's coffee shop, Tom described Troy's very mild interest in drugs. Everybody said, well, he's involved in drugs, involved in drugs. And I said, well, Troy didn't even show up on the radar for the undercover cops. Like, they came in and they said, we don't know Troy the name, you know. Yeah. Like, and he did a little weed, like, yeah, but he's a typical teenager, like, and I always told him, I said, I don't have a big problem with weed, but I said, Troy, just don't ever do the coke or anything, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. But, because he just had started smoking before that, so I think the two went hand in hand. But. Yeah. Beyond simply speaking about drugs, I asked if Troy had ever been involved in the legal system in any capacity. As you'll hear Tom describe next, Troy didn't. Troy or any of our family was never involved with the law, and this year is the first time I ever dealt with police when Troy went missing, and it was a whole new ball game. No, Troy was Troy was a good person, so. As you just heard, those searching for Troy had very little to go on, and there certainly wasn't any red flags to guide them. Quite simply, Troy was dropped off at his apartment that he may or may not have entered, and then within a half hour, Troy, or someone pretending to be him, phoned the superstore from a Tim Hortons in a nearby town to let them know he wouldn't make it to work. And then, or maybe prior to then, Troy simply vanished. Now with Tom being the last person to see him, the investigation did glance in his direction, albeit very briefly. In a move that seems a little odd to me, Two years after Troy's disappearance, local police requested Tom take a polygraph. What really hurt me was the when they polygraphed me. Because, you know, they always do the parents first, and where I was the last person to see them. Two years later, they did it. And without even telling them, they just phoned me one night and said, Tom will be at your work, pick you up, we're going down to Halifax to do a polygraph. It was the day before my birthday. So two officers picked me up at my work. On the way down was very somber talk. When we pulled in the yard, the detective turned around and he said, Tom, you know what they're going to ask you? And I said, no. They're going to ask you if you hurt your son. And I lost. I, you know, like, why would you tell me that before I went in to do? So when, when he first went missing, were you questioned at all then? Yes, I had to do a statement. Yeah, just, you know what I thought happened and, you know, where I was afterwards and, and that evening and stuff like that. So I gave my, I, was in, I think I was in there for an hour or more. And, okay. Yeah. And then and two years later. Two years, you know, like, why not do it when everything's fresh in my head? Yeah. Do you recall what kind of questions they were asking you? Oh, they went right from my childhood right up to my, you know, did I ever beat my kids? You know, like, I said, no, I just slimmed, I may gave him a slap on the ass few times but nothing you know not a sticker you know or yeah but the interview with the I don't know it was just terrible it was just the guy who was doing the uh, polygraph he is really good because he when he first approached me he said Tom he said I don't know you from home ground he said I don't know if you did anything or not but he said when we're down here two of us will know you know the truth and he, and uh, I came out of that and he unhooked me and he said Tom he said, you pass the flying colors. Okay. And I just, you know, I could have, there was a hole there, I could have sunk into it, you know. We'll begin to move on in the story now. We've heard about Troy's life, 
his disappearance, and then some of the factors in his life that have led to the many rumors that surround this disappearance. In the next segment, Tom will share his thoughts on the past 20 years without Troy. One thing that became clear during my discussions with Tom was that his relationship with law enforcement had some bumps along the road. But with the task of finding Troy largely their responsibility, I asked Tom what kind of relationship he maintains with police and how he feels about the investigation they've carried out thus far. Well, it's gone 20 years and I've never thought it would go this far. It's been up and down with the police. They've done good things and there's some things that they just should have looked into and haven't. And, uh, and now uh, the RCMP are involved more. There's one chap, he's, uh, he took on cold cases, and he's, I deal with him directly. And he, we meet about once a month, and if there's any news, he lets me know. But in, the, in general, I would say the police are doing what they can. Earlier I mentioned the fact that Troy's case has received regular attention from local media outlets, and as a result, the case has become well-known in Nova Scotia. During my research for this episode, I collected as many written articles as I could find and was impressed with just how much there was out there. Surprisingly, my favorite written piece on this case appeared in the controversial tabloid, Frank Magazine. It was written by a friend of mine, Bev Ketty. In fact, it was Bev's piece that led to me feeling a connection with the story. But what I didn't find much of during my research was video reports about the case. That may be a symptom of much of the coverage occurring prior to the prevalence of internet video. However, fortunately, Tom had recorded much of the past television coverage on VHS tapes and allowed me access to them for a period of time. I had the tapes converted to digital and remastered the clips with the goal of sharing it online as a way to further spread Troy's story. If you're interested in watching them, I've uploaded a compilation of the clips to my Facebook and YouTube pages. It's quite incredible to watch, really, as the clips start with the first news clips just days after Troy was reported missing. There'll be a direct link to that video in this episode's description. Now, during our conversation, I asked Tom how both the media and his community supported him. As far as community, they, like people are concerned, they always asked, you know, if, if I met anyone I knew how Troy was, how the case was going, and I'd inform them. And, uh, and with the media, it was always me that approached them to uh, do an interview. And that's why I kept it out this, there this long. And, uh, but most media outlets, they, if I want something done, they'll, they'll do a story, which is very good. As you can imagine, the regular media coverage has helped keep Troy's story alive in the eyes of the public and certainly added a degree of warmth to something that many would consider a cold case. As Tom has made such great efforts to ensure Troy is not forgotten, something I planned to talk to him about was how he keeps Troy's memory alive in his life. The story he told was really quite touching. I would say about four or five years into the missing when he was missing um i forgot his voice it was a terrible thing i just i just couldn't remember it and then i was talking to my sister one day about it and she said well i have him on tape 
And I said, oh, my God. And this year's just almost around Christmas, so what a Christmas present to hear his voice. And uh, he had left her a message when he moved into his apartment. He couldn't get a hold of me or, or her, so he left a, a short message on her answer machine. And she kept it, and that was the, a blessing because I, I played that a thousand times or more. Hearing Tom describe listening to a voicemail Troy left prior to his disappearance may make many of you question how you can help Tom. I asked him that very question, and his request, it's really quite simple. I talk to people and I say, well, I'm talking to you. You'll talk to people and it'll just snowball. Just keep talking about it. Keep, keep it out there. I think that's the best way. If you're willing to help share Troy's story, I'll tell you where to start. His younger brother, Mike, runs a Facebook group called Find Troy Cook. Joining that group will help you stay up to date on the case, as most articles released on the case typically find their way to the group. Further to that, sharing articles and, of course, this episode with anyone you think may be interested will help spread the story and perhaps even lead to the tip that closes the case. So with that, I'll begin wrapping up this episode, but I want to end it by sharing the most emotional part of the talk. Of course, sitting and discussing a missing persons case with the father is heavy, but when our conversation eventually made it to what type of closure Tom is hoping for, it got really tough. One moment in particular, still three weeks after recording, puts butterflies in my stomach. When I asked Tom what he believes became of Troy, he became lost for words. Okay, this year's gone on for so long now, and uh, like I always said, within the first year of Troy didn't contact me, then there was something seriously wrong. So I would say my worst outcome right now is that Troy is no longer alive, and um, we have to... After taking a moment to get collected, I ended our talk by asking Tom what he will need to happen for him to gain a sense of closure. His comments are difficult to imagine, but I believe him. I would say right now, all I want is closure, and I know it's not going to be good, because, like I said before, if Troy could contact me, he would. We can't go another 20 years. I mean, this year took 20 years of my life, and I don't want this to take 20 years of my son's life. So we have to have closure, and uh, I know it's... I just want closure just to bring him home. I don't even care what the details are or anything. Like, And people always told me I'd, I, would, uh, I wouldn't let it go even if I did find him. I'd want a reason why he went. But I would, I would, I would let it go. I really would. Because people say I'm obsessed in finding my son, but he's my son. So, so we just want closure, the whole family. I want to end this episode by urging anyone with information on Troy's case to please break their silence and pass the info along to investigators. Someone out there knows what happened to Troy, and it won't take much more than a phone call to Truro Police to put this all to rest. Tom needs closure, and Troy's brother Mike needs closure. Do the right thing and call Truro Police at 902-895-5351. Or if you really want to come out ahead on this, Take advantage of Nova Scotia's Rewards for Major Unsolved Crimes program. Troy's case has a $150,000 reward. 
Now to Tom Cook, I want to thank you for sharing your story with me and offering up so much of your time. I can only hope my coverage of Troy's disappearance helps you connect with others who are willing to support you in your search. And to anyone out there who knew Troy personally, or anyone with a close connection to this case, I'd love to hear from you and invite you to share your thoughts on an upcoming episode. I'd specifically like to speak with James Taylor and Sharon Tucker. If you hear this, know I'd love to speak with you. Now with that said, we'll conclude this episode of the Nighttime Podcast. If you enjoyed the music you heard during this episode, it's actually just a short piece of the great new single by the Canadian ambient pop duo Paragon Cause. You can check out the whole tune on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'll add a link to Paragon Cause in the show notes. If you're interested in hearing more content, check out the Nighttime Patron Group, where for $1 a month you can support the show and access supporter-exclusive bonus content. You can join now by visiting patreon.com slash nighttime podcast and for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't do it financially you can help by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on apple podcasts or the equivalent if any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show follow me on facebook twitter and instagram i use the handle at nighttime pod if you have any story ideas or feedback on the show I'd love to hear from you at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, keep looking around and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.